Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I am your co-host, Laura Munoz. And we're here today uh, with uh, another member of the lab that I work in. So I'm a friend of mine and a co-worker of mine that I'm really glad to have on, Asad Lone, PhD in uh, biology, working on his PhD in biology, senior PhD. Uh, welcome, Asad. Uh, hi, guys. Good to be good to be back. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You you are an uh, experienced uh, in the grad cast experience. Um, and this is your second time on the show. So we'd like to know what you're working on generally. And maybe you can just like dive basically right in with what you've been doing since last time you were on the show. Yeah, so um, just to give everyone a brief overview, uh, I, I do uh, work on a, a disease called Alzheimer's disease, and uh, Alzheimer's disease is a uh, neurodegenerative disease. It's the most common form of age-related dementia. Um, there's like 50 million um, patients around the world, and 10 million new patients get diagnosed every year. So it's a really important um, epidemic in, in the sense that it's really um you know, it's widespread around the world. Um, so what we work on in our lab, in the coming lab, um, we focus on metabolism and Alzheimer's disease. And someone might, someone might ask, why do you look at metabolism? Because the dominant hypothesis or the, um, the main uh, focus for the last 25 years in this field has been um, focused on a protein called amyloid beta uh, the hypothesis called amyloid, the amyloid cascade hypothesis, which, you know, uh, posits that it is the buildup of, of toxic protein in the brain as we age. Uh, the protein is called amyloid beta and it, um, you know, it's a sticky protein. It's um, when you look at when you look at it under the microscope, it looks like this uh, starchy protein called amylin. And, you know, it makes these plaques, um, extracellular plaques within our brains which can cause a lot of um, uh, synaptic loss and neuronal death. So, um, which then causes a lot of memory deficits, uh, personality deficits, um, you know, and then eventually leading to a very um, uh, painful decline in age, in uh, health, sorry. So, um, so, you know, why look at metabolism when everyone focuses on uh, amyloid beta? Um, I think the, there is um, quite a lot of evidence to support that the main causal factor in Alzheimer's disease might not be amyloid beta. It actually might be the metabolism of the brain. Um, so uh, one of the main things that people, not a lot of people know is that as we age, um, brain metabolism declines as well. So um, when, you when you take a brain of a healthy 30-year-old compared to someone who's 70 years old and completely fine, who doesn't have Alzheimer's disease, there's a decline in brain metabolism. But when you take someone with Alzheimer's disease, compare it with someone who's 30 years old, there's a significant difference that you can see in the glucose metabolism of the person, of the brain of someone who's 30 years old compared to someone who's maybe like 75, 80 years old and has Alzheimer's disease. And so we kind of want to try and understand um, what proteins are involved in um, that, that. What proteins are involved in controlling the metabolism in the cells in our brain? And so that's what my kind of project focuses on. Is um, I look at one specific protein called p66 chicken, 
we kind of treat it as a switch. We turn that protein on, we turn that protein off, and we look at how that affects the metabolism in the cells of our brain. So, um, so basically what, what we talked about in our last um, uh, podcast was that the protein that, we, that I work on, the paper that, we, uh, that I published since, um, we showed that this protein acts as a molecular switch that can um, change the metabolism of a cell from a mitochondrial-based metabolism to glycolysis. And I'll explain that in a more um, digestible manner. So the mitochondria, think of the mitochondria as a, the engine of the cell, you know, or the, the, the more commonly known as the factory of a cell that is there to produce energy for everything that the cell does. And, you know, just like an engine, when you, you, when you have a fuel, in this case, that is glucose, um, you produce energy, but at the same time, you also have emissions, like, you know, a car running on gas, it produces a lot of power, but it also has a lot of emissions. And that is kind of like what the mitochondria is. So our, the cells of our brain, they're very energy demanding. The brain is 2% of our body weight, and it uses up, up almost like 25% of all energy produced in our body. So it's very energy demanding. And so the cells of the brain, they primarily use mitochondria, um, to produce energy and then there's a lot of pollution that is produced as well um, however there's another way that the cell can um, make energy and that process is called glycolysis and you, it's actually just fermentation of sugar it's basically you take glucose and you the, there's a pathway of enzymes that converts uh, the glucose to uh, lactate um, and then if there's any hydrogen ions around they react with this molecule and they produce lactic acid. Uh, and most people might know lactic acid, you know, when, you, when you're running on a treadmill and after a while you might get off and you have pain in your muscle, in your legs, in your calves, and that's actually lactic acid buildup. It's, you know, when you run on a treadmill, uh, you're gasping for air and your cells are using, your, the, the, the muscle cells in your legs are using mitochondria to produce energy, but the mitochondria needs oxygen. And when you run really fast on a treadmill, you need to be inhaling a lot more oxygen than, you know, for, for example, me, I'm just sitting down on a chair. And at some point, the amount of oxygen going in is not enough for all the cells in our muscles to be able to produce energy required to run on the treadmill. And so how does the cells in our muscles kind of make up that energy deficit? They switch to glycolysis which is basically it takes glucose and it doesn't require oxygen. So it's basically um, millions of years ago through our evolution, bacteria, they could take in glucose and they didn't need oxygen because maybe oxygen wasn't there in our atmosphere and they could take in sugar and they could ferment it and they could produce energy. Our cells have still maintained that, um, uh, that, that method of making energy, but a byproduct is lactate and that lactic, lactate um, reacts with hydrogen and then you get lactic acids. I know I'm gone a little bit off topic, but just to explain these two different uh, ways to, of making energy. So think of a car, a hybrid car that can use gas and electricity. So gas would be your mitochondria or your mitochondrial metabolism taking in um, producing energy, but you have a lot more emissions. Um, but glycolysis would be when you switch, when you run out of gas, you would switch the car to your car battery. It's electric now. So you're still producing energy, but you're not producing a lot of emissions. 
So it's a cleaner way of producing energy. And um, the protein that I'm working on acts as a molecular switch to switch going from mitochondrial metabolism to glycolysis. And so people might ask, why is this, why is this relevant in Alzheimer's disease? Well, um, so my, my, my supervisor, Dr. Robert Cumming, um, his work, his, his postdoctoral work in the Salk Institute, um, they actually showed that if you have cells being cultured in a dish and you add that toxic protein amyloid beta that builds it up in the brain that, that most people think that is causing Alzheimer's disease. When you, when you take a dish of brain, a, a neurons, cells from the brain, and you put that toxic protein on it, most will die. Some will survive. And if you take those cells that are surviving and then you culture, you keep growing them, you know, for generation after generation with that protein, that toxic protein acting as a environmental stressor, those cells will eventually kind of be um, completely, um, uh, they'll be completely, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, damage proof, you know, they, the amyloid beta won't be able to kill them. And so what Robert did, my supervisor, is he looked at what, what's different in those cells, the ones that are not, that amyloid beta cannot kill, than the ones that amyloid beta can kill. And they found that the ones that, am, that are resistant to amyloid beta, they actually use glycolytic metabolism. So they use a the clean form of energy. They don't use mitochondrial metabolism. So that was a, quite a significant discovery. But... At that time, we didn't know how does that shift happen? How does a cell switch from using mitochondrial metabolism and then go to this more cleaner form of energy called glycolysis? And so um, part of my initial project, where my first publication was to, we identif identified one of the proteins involved in this switch. And um, you know, I showed that the, when, this, when this protein is switched on, and when it's phosphorylated, um, this protein can uh, change the amount of enzymes in the cell that are used in different types of metabolism. So if this protein is on, the cell is using mitochondrial metabolism. And so the, 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 the levels of the enzymes that are using glycolysis, they go down. But when you turn this protein off and you switch this uh, metabolism of the cell towards its more cleaner version, the level of those enzymes actually go up. So the enzymic expression increases. And, you know, we also showed that when the, when the protein is switched off and it moves to this glycolytic metabolism, there's less pollution. So there's less production of what we call reactive oxygen species or ROS for short. And so there's less ROS, which means that the cell is under less stress. And then finally, we wanted to ask the question that if, you, if all these beneficial effects are occurring, when you turn this protein off, um, are these cells actually more resistant to the toxic protein amyloid beta? So I took a bunch of cells and I uh, transfected them with an siRNA, but we don't need to talk about all these uh, protocols, but basically I switched that protein off and I added amyloid beta into this dish of cells. And I, what I found was that these cells were actually more resistant to amyloid beta. Far fewer of those cells died than the ones that had this protein switched on. And so what, what I showed was that when, when you have this protein switched on in, in neurons, 
Um, the cell is using mitochondrial metabolism. There's a lot more pollution. There's a lot more ROS in these cells. Um, even though they're producing more energy, that might not be beneficial in the long term because there's a lot more stress that these cells are under. And then when you add amyloid beta on top of that, the cell there's, there's a threshold as to how much stre stress a cell can undertake. And when that threshold is crossed, the cell dies. And so when a cell is using mitochondrial metabolism, the, the threshold, you're almost at that threshold, but then when you add an environmental an environmental stressor such as amyloid beta, the cell's like, okay, I'm done. I can't handle this much stress. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tap out. So but when I you... wonder, sorry. Yeah, I, go ahead, I, go wonder, ahead, yeah. I wonder usually how does the cell clean the pollution that is produced by using uh, mitochondrial, like using the mitochondrial way to produce energy? How, how is usually that pollution is usually clean? Yeah, that's a good question. So the, the cell is, uh, uh, cells are amazing because they, they almost have an answer to every problem that they create themselves. So there, is, there are these enzymes, these proteins that a cell makes and they're called antioxidant enzymes. So you know how we, a lot of people say that, oh, eat, uh, eat a lot of blueberries or eat berries or eat, you know, whatever new uh, uh, food, superfood that's in fashion because it's an antioxidant. That's what they're talking about, that you're giving your cell the prerequisites, the building blocks to make these proteins, these antioxidant proteins. And their function is kind of like um, recycling. What they do is they take these um, damaging species, these reactive oxygen species, and they, they, they're, they're different ways that they could neutralize them. And so uh, the, what happens is that when a cell is going under some, some kind of stress, it will actuate in it will activate an antioxidant pathway, which, which, which is you know, a, a series of events that happen uh, leading to um, um, uh, these proteins called transcription factors binding to our DNA and promoting the production of these antioxidant enzymes. And then these antioxidant enzymes can go and kind of like um, uh, make sure that these damaging uh, molecules, these reactive oxygen species are taken care of so that they don't damage other proteins and they don't damage other DNA. So they, they, the, the cell has, has a, an answer to all these problems. So Saad, you, you know, you're, you're, you've characterized the way they can, you know, these cells can adapt uh, to different stressors over time. And um, the one that you found uh, and characterized most deeply was this uh, P66 shik um, and how it's, um, it's bad news. Oh, yeah. on its own. <laughs> you don't <laughs> want to have very it. bad news. Yeah, yeah. In, so, in some study, in earlier studies, they show that if you take a mouse and you um, switch this protein off, basically you 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 uh, silence the expression of this protein. Um, these mice live longer. And so that's a of, connection from the cells because you work with the cells, like in you keep saying a dish. So you're literally growing cells individually in a dish, but these are cells from a multicellular organism like us, or like a mouse, or like a rat where they, you know, they live, they live all together. And you're showing that even in the whole organism, if you have, um, if you take it away, then these, these animals uh, fare better. So I'm just trying to see if like, we can look at back to a connection. If Alzheimer's disease is, is a disease of, of humans and not, and not other animals. So uh, do you see now that you've done a lot of the characterization on the molecular level, and that's all the work that you've now published on P66 Schick, um, what's the next step to get to the, the human disease? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, 
there are other groups that have worked on this protein as well in the context of Alzheimer's disease. So um, one of the conferences that we, you and I actually went to, the Alzheimer's disease conference uh, in 2017, I believe it was in Toronto. Uh, I met one of these, uh, luckily, I just met one of the uh, uh, scientists uh, who was working on this same protein in Alzheimer's disease, and he's based out of Switzerland. Um, I, I, I can't remember his name right now, but what he did was basically he took these animals, um, these uh, a disease model um, that we use to study Alzheimer's disease. These are basically mice that have specific mutations, specific genes that have been put in their genome, uh, which allow them to get the same type of deposition of this protein in their brain that like humans do. And so what he did was he took these Alzheimer's mice and he bred them with mice that had the P66 protein turned off. So what he ended up with were, was uh, a generation of mice that had, um, that, were, that were going to have a lot of amyloid beta in the brain, like, you know, like an aged human would, but it didn't have that protein, the P66 protein. And when he did a battery of memory tests on these mice, he actually found that these mice were actually a lot better in remembering um, uh, or, or having better memory than mice that had this protein switched on. And so there's already data that exists that shows that when you turn this protein off, at least in animals, they actually have better memory compared to animals that, that have this protein switched on. So for a preclinical data perspective, there is data that already exists. And so um, I think there needs to be more work done in animal uh, model. And I think that once we have a safety or a better depth understanding of what this protein is doing when you just switch it off, I think that we can start um, we can start investigating this protein in humans as well. Because safety comes first. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually my question because I was wondering, because as you said before, the cells are so wise and they know what they're doing most of the time. So there must be a reason why this protein is turned on or, or off. So like if we just turn it off or because it's better for Alzheimer, maybe we're screwing a lot of other things in the cell. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. Uh, and I, that, that, that question keeps me up at night, right? Because, you know, um, if, if like, I don't think that anything in, there's no, there's no kind of molecular pathway that's redundant, that you just take away or you put it out or you switch it off and it will have no effect on the body. Like 100%, if you switch this protein off, it's not all good news. There are going to be on, you know, some consequences to that. Uh, you know, if, if, if anyone ever comes to you and says that, oh, you know, I look at this protein and I've made this discovery and it's all good news, no bad news, never trust that, you know? <laughs> so what, one of the things that I worry about is that um, for this P66 protein, it, because it, um, when you switch it off, some of the downstream effects that happen, even though they might look good, one of the things I worry about is that they might be actually pro-cancerous. So what is cancer? Um, cancer cells actually are cells that are growing really rapid. rapid. They, grow, they grow fast. And in, in, interestingly, cancer cells use the same kind of metabolism that, is, that makes a cell resistant to amyloid beta. 
So the question is, if you change, if you take a neuron and you switch its metabolism to one that is protecting it against amyloid beta, are you potentially making it cancerous? Right. So these studies need to be done in mice where, you know, you have a we have an animal um, and you switch off P66 chick and you let them live. Is there an is do these animals have a higher incidence of cancer or tumor growth or something like that? So these studies need to be done. That's why you know, in the beginning I said the safety, we, we, we need to look at whether this is safe. But in humans and I'm talking like really down the line, you know, um, if if this protein ever becomes a drug target, um, you know, to switch this protein off. I don't think that it would be lifelong. It would either be something that would be very targeted and in a short period of time, you know, so it would be someone who just got it, uh, you know, an, an Alzheimer's disease um, um, diagnosis. Okay, maybe we can give this specific, whatever type of drug it would be to maybe for a short time, switch this protein off and see how it would affect um, that person. Would it improve memory? Would it help with cognition? Like, you know, these are the questions that we need to down the line try and answer. And how is that possible? How can you target just one protein? Oh, so that's, that's, that's the hot stuff these days. It's called um, precision medicine. It's, it's being used in cancer a lot. So, you know, if you have a uh, pro, if you have an oncogenic protein, which is basically a protein that can promote uh, the, the production of a tumor, there already are a lot of drugs and clinical trials that specifically focus one protein in like a pathway. And they've, they've done a lot of these, uh, um, uh, these studies on, in humans. And I think they've, there are quite a few FDA approved drugs as well that specifically target one protein. So that technology is there. We just need to get there for Alzheimer's disease. So, so let's say, you know, we wanted to do the best we could while somebody somewhere works on some precision medicine. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people think uh, when they think of metabolism, they think of like eating, like it's, it's food. That's what I'm, I, I take food in and that food becomes like smaller food for my cells so that my cells can then yeah, eat. Yeah, yeah, so I'm yeah. eating, putting in my mouth yeah. is by proxy, putting food into the mouths of all my cells. <laughs> So um, exactly, it, yeah. is diet related to this phenomena of like, you know, glycolysis versus the mitochondria versus like what our which our cells are switching to? Does diet have any uh, impact here? And what are your thoughts on on diet and Alzheimer's? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's a topic that I'm really interested in, and I I personally think that diet plays a significant role in all chronic diseases. And if you actually read the literature on Alzheimer's disease, then insulin resistance or diabetes is a huge uh, comorbidity that is linked with Alzheimer's disease to the point where Alzheimer's disease is actually called type three diabetes. You know, so the, uh, the brain actually becomes diabetic where it cannot use glucose for fuel. So you know how people, there's, there's this um, misunderstanding that people say that, um, glucose or sugar is needed needed by the brain that's actually completely false um, in terms of need glucose comes in in number three it comes in third in what kind of food the uh, brain prefers uh, the number one is actually ketones and number two is lactate and glucose is, comes in, in at number three so um so, so yeah so the ketogenic diet is really famous these days gets a lot of heat but you know in um uh, 
from a therapeutic point of view, it's a very strong intervention. And um, quite a few randomized clinical trials have shown that um, the ketogenic diet can actually improve memory and cognition in patients who are suffering from Alzheimer's disease. And basically it works through a couple of different ways, but you know, uh, and to answer your question in, 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 a, in a brief manner, if the brain cannot use one fuel, just give it a, diff a different one. Because our, all the cells in our bodies, our brain, our muscle cells, they can use different kinds of fuel, just like a hybrid car can use gas and electricity. Our cells can use ketones, lactate, glucose, these different molecules to make energy. And if a brain cannot use glucose, if it's, you know, quote unquote diabetic, if it's insulin resistant, then just give it another fuel. And that's basically how the ketogenic diet works in, in the context of Alzheimer's disease. It provides these energy molecules called ketones that the brain, can, brain cells can take up and produce ATP or the energy currency in the cell. And thereby the brain cells are not starving. They're, they're, they're functioning um, normally then. And which kind of food can you eat to get these ketones? Yeah, so a ketogenic diet is a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. And so what you have to do is you have to focus on um, reducing your um, intake of carbohydrates, which are mainly you, you process carbohydrates. So you wanna eat less rice, bread, uh, sugar, uh, you know, the, the, the bad stuff. And then you wanna increase, um, you wanna eat more um, uh, meat and you wanna eat more butter um, uh, cheese, um, vegetables, you know, the good stuff. So it's basically almost like a healthier diet when you compare it to the standard American diet. So it's a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. Yeah. Very cool. And I, uh, you know, um, makes me wonder, like, I mean, why don't, why don't people just do that now? You tried this out yourself, the diet? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've even taken part in a clinical trial on the ketogenic diet. I, I love taking, um, I love you know, measuring different parameters on my body and, you know, sleep or blood glucose, blood ketones, you know. And so when this opportunity came up that I could take part in a clinical trial and I'd be getting a blood test like every two weeks and I could look at my LDL and my uh, HbA1c and, you know, um, uh, cholesterol. And so I was like, yes, sign me up. <laughs> Collect as much data as I can on myself. Yeah. That's so cool. You know, it's, it's nice to see that you're passionate about this, about this topic. And, you, you know, you really adopt it into your, into your day-to-day -day life as well. Um, yeah. Where does the day-to-day -day life of Assad loan go after their PhD? You're, you're almost done here. You're writing your, writing your uh, thesis uh, at the moment. So uh, what are your plans? Yes. Yeah, so um, initially I was like, when I started out my PhD, I was very passionate about that. I, I want to key stay in academia, you know, I'll, I'll do a postdoc and I'll, you know, somehow um, weasel my way into like becoming a, a professor or, you know, a scientist in a, in a research lab. Um, five years later, I'm not that hot on that <laughs> um, idea anymore. Um, I think that I need a bit of a break from academia. And so what I'm thinking is I'm, you know, exploring my options as either in consultancy or in, in some form of uh, more broad role in like pharmaceutical, maybe even in public health with what's going on these days. I've been kind of really interested in like public health data and the responses to um, such crises. And so I think that um, these are some of the roles that I'm kind of interested in these days. And that's one good thing about doing a PhD is that, you know, because you're picking up so many different skills, 
you know, you, you, you're not only a scientist, you have to be a writer and you have to travel and you have to attend conferences and you have to manage time, you have to manage expenses, you have to design experiments that almost makes you in, a problem solver in different areas. And so I think that's one thing that I want to kind of pursue, use these real world skills that you get as a PhD student and apply them um, in, in a different uh, environment other than academia. And maybe, you know, I'll retire in academia, who knows? Cool. So um, just uh, just our last question here, if people wanted to like find you online, where's the, la where's the pl one place they could go? Yeah, so uh, I share my research on ResearchGate. So if you just uh, search for Assad Loan, um, you, you'll find me there. I'm usually like the top uh, link that comes up in Google. And you can also search, uh, check out our lab if anyone's interested in studying metabolism or Alzheimer's disease. Uh, you're more than welcome to check out thecominglab.com. You know, we share all our new uh, publications. We share the kind of work we do. You can contact students. You can contact our uh, supervisors. So it's a great website to get resources on uh, on what we do there. Excellent. Thanks, Asad. It's been great having you on the show. Um, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame. My co-host was Laura Minos, and we've been speaking with Asad Lone. This episode is also produced by Laura Minos, co-produced, co co-host and producer. Uh, if you'd like to get involved in the show, uh, get in contact with us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at gradcastradio. Uh, you can listen to us on the radio, Radio Western, 94.9 FM. All our websites, all our episodes are on our website at gradcast.ca. And you can just find us as wherever podcasts are available, basically, as well. Um, including Spotify. People like Spotify nowadays. We're there. Alternatively, the video version of a lot of our episodes are on YouTube. That's also Gradcast Radio. Thanks for listening. Have a great night.